Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. We're back on Star Talk live at Beacon Theater! We are talking about space exploration, the search for aliens. Is that a good thing? Maybe, maybe not. And what impact would that, should that have on our culture, on our civilization? And we've got a panel of fun folks to help us decode these questions. I've got a friend and colleague, Carolyn Porco, head of the imaging team of Cassini Mission to Saturn. Carolyn Porco, yes. I, and I, I call her Madam Saturn. And you okay with that? I'm, I never asked. I'm okay with that. Okay, good. Thank it you. Could be, it could be worse. Okay, all right. <laughs> uh, we've also got Sean Ono Lennon, who's an artist and musician. He's going to give us that side of this story. And Eugene, tell us who you brought. Uh, Michael Ian Black and Vanessa Vare. All right. So, Carolyn, some of the images that you were in charge of bringing back, or, or, or assembling, creating, because the field of view of the camera is not so large that you get everything. You have to mosaic many of the big pictures, sweeping pictures that we've seen. At the end of the day, we're looking at shadows of the ring cast on the ball. The sun is here, and, and you see the, the, how many tiny rings make up the big ring. And I'm looking at it and say, I want this as a poster on my wall. I know. And, and so, Sean, do you see the space pictures as art? I certainly do. In fact, um, even when I was very young, I, I actually gave Carolyn this painting because we became friends recently, and I painted Saturn. And I remember realizing later on that the coloring of Saturn was artificially colored, and I was so depressed. I was like, well, what does Saturn really look like? And, and that's what's so cool about Carolyn's work is that she's actually showing us more you know, beautiful images of what Saturn really would look like to our eyes. But I was always kind of surprised that they colored them. And I know it's for science and stuff. He's talking about false color pictures. Yeah, you know, oh, yeah, you false know color. how they, it looks so, so colorful, Saturn. But actually, I realized that ah. Carolyn's pictures are much more accurate. So, so yeah, I follow it for sure. So, so Carolyn, if you go back uh, into the early 60s, space missions, it, no one really, the scientific community, didn't really <laughs> want to send cameras. No, because the pictures <coughs> are fine, but there's no real data in a picture. You want, you want chart recorders and, and measure magnetic fields and spectral uh, distributions. And so how, do you, how did photography of cosmic objects rise to such a height? Well, let me, this is a very interesting little tidbit of uh, planetary science history. But in the early days of the space program, Neil is right. They didn't want to send cameras, and it was Carl Sagan who was arguing for... He argued a billion times. <laughs> Billions yeah. of... He argued for bringing along cameras on planetary missions when all the other scientists thought pictures were for PR. They weren't basic science, and they would just be taking up space on a spacecraft, but he, he lost... Not only space, but weight. The yes, weight of that, a camera. The whole thing. Money, budget. Everything. Money, budget, everything. 
So the first, um, I think I've got this right, the first planetary mission didn't have a camera, but he eventually won the war, and we've had cameras on spacecraft ever since, but, you know. How did they get that reverse shot of the moon craft taking off from the moon? I mean, you know what I'm talking about? In 1969, when they actually land on the moon, I mean, there's this reverse shot where the moon lander goes back up off the moon. I mean, was there a cameraman sitting there? Like, No, there was a the camera that was left on the lunar module that took that was left on and took a... That's a pretty spectacular shot. It, it was the cameraman. It was just studio. a dude sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> I just was always amazed that they, 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 they got a shot of them leaving, because I mean... I think what ultimately happened, NASA is formed as an agency first to compete with Russia, the Soviet Union, and to uh, show our technological might. And you're right, the public relations wasn't so much about what you do with the science, it was about, here's our astronauts. The, the public relations was all through that lens. And so later on, you would learn that when you take those kinds of pictures, people eat it up, and it transports them into that moment. And then NASA's budget becomes a little more stable. And, and people, no matter who they are, have some sensitivity and interest in continuing this adventure. That's right. And, and, but it looks That's like why I take pictures and of your boobs. mission did this <laughs> like nothing else I ever did. Well, thank you. I'm glad you noticed. But, uh, you know, well, I was... It's not worth repeating. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, was on, I was on the Voyager mission, and believe me, the Voyager was just absolutely the most magnificent romantic mission you could ever have been on. You were, you were young back I then. Was, I was young. There was a time when I was young. Okay. <laughs> and... I noticed, I mean, as great as it was, I was noticing that, you know, the pictures were being processed basically to support press conferences. So most of the pictures that were released to the public by the Voyager mission were put out in, you know, a period of about seven days around each of the flybys. Uh, and they weren't, there wasn't a lot of attention paid Just to... Just to be clear, Voyager visited many planets. Jupiter and it would not Saturn. go into orbit around them. So hence the, the word flyby had very high currency back then because you never hung out at the planet that you visited. That's so right. So you'd fly by uh, Saturn, Jupiter, Uranus, Neptune, and each of those had this package. That's what you're describing. That's right. Okay. So, and there wasn't a whole lot of uh, attention paid to how you process the images or getting the color right. And so when I was made the leader of the imaging team on Cassini, this was like one of my cardinal goals. It's not like I could tell my fellow scientists this, but I had it in my mind that I was going to make the pictures absolutely as beautiful and as natural as I could so the public would feel like they were along for the ride. So, uh, and that's what we did, and I'm, you know, really no, proud of it. Great <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome! <laughs> Who is that? <laughs> Michael, what do you got? Where are the Voyager spacecraft now? They're about, f uh, don't quote me on this, but something like 16 to 17 or 18 light hours away from here. Have, uh, are they out of the solar system? One of them, Voyager 1, has crossed uh, kind of the edge of the magnetic bubble, so to speak. So we can legitimately say it's in interstellar space. But you can't legitimately say it's no longer under the influence of the sun. So, so Voyager 1, uh, the two Voyagers, so Voyager 1 passed Neptune. Passed the orbit of Neptune. The orbit of Neptune, the last planet in yes. the solar system, and uh, <laughs> and you won't leave it alone. And, no, and he's turn, right. He's right. He's right. And they turn the camera around. Yes. By whose prompting? Tell oh, me about that okay, story. Okay. Okay. So this was just an idea that um, I had soon as I was made a team member of the Voyager imaging team, which was right after I got my PhD. So this was like 
in October of 1983, I went to work for Brad Smith, who was the head of the imaging team. So you got your PhD, if I remember correctly, from Caltech. Caltech in yeah. May of 1983. <laughs> good school. <laughs> so. Anyway. Thank you, Eugene, for establishing that Caltech is a good school. So, <laughs> Somebody's got to. Somebody's got to go. So uh, I just thought it would be great to take a picture. Actually, my idea was to take a picture of the solar system, because I knew Voyager 1 was not going to encounter any more planets after uh, Saturn. And I had a different idea than Carl, who eventually had also proposed this, but I didn't know about his effort. He didn't know about mine. I thought, wouldn't it be great to show what the solar system would look like to an alien coming in from outside? That's what I wanted to do. Carl, of a course... A family photo of planets. Yes, and it? Carl wanted to take a picture of the solar system, too, but he really was after that whole, you know, romantic idea of showing the Earth as... He, didn't, he hadn't coined the phrase yet, pale blue dot, but that was his idea. And to show the picture of the Earth awash in a sea of stars, you know, just to emphasize the loneliness, the tininess of our planet in the hopes of engendering feelings of planetary brotherhood and so on. So um, I, I was going around hawking it on the Voyager project in like 1984. Annie tells me, his wife tells me, he had started two years Andrean. earlier, mm -hmm. Andrean. We both got like dull stares, like, you want to do what? You want to take a picture of the Earth? It's only going to be a pixel. What are you, crazy? Get out of here. The kind, that kind of a response. And finally, as the mission, we're really getting near the end. They slapped you? No. Okay. <laughs> That's just my audiovisual effect. <laughs> okay. So finally, Carl, when I say they didn't want to do it, the Voyager Project didn't want to do it, the big guys, the ones who made the decisions, Carl went to NASA. He went all the way to the NASA administrator and convinced the him. The head of NASA. The head of NASA. And so the people at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory were directed to take this picture, and that's what we did. Well, why is it so hard? Isn't there a lot of downtime? I mean, you're just flying through space. Can't you just say, yeah, just turn the camera around for a second? Why is that so hard? <laughs> uh, I think it required doing something that we hadn't done on the Voyager project, and that was take the antenna, which was continuously in those days pointing to the Earth, and actually break communications, take it off, so we could use the antenna to shield the camera from the sun, or else you wouldn't be able to take this picture, and then take the antenna and point it back to the Earth, and they were afraid they'd never get it back there. So it wasn't until Voyager 1 was completely done with its mission, its planetary part of the mission, that they let us do this. And uh, they managed to regain communications anyway, but we finally this, this did it. This became the famous pale blue dot the famous pale blue dot. image that became the... the, the it became almost the spiritual inspiration for the book, Carl Sagan's book, The Pale Blue Dot. It's iconic. I mean, it, yeah. it just really, people really love it. It's so amazing. it's just Earth, just barely a pixel in the image. And it was not in a sea of stars, but it's a sea of nothingness. And but that's just because of the aperture of a lens. If you set it for the lightning, the lighting of the Earth, then you're not going to see the stars. But they're there. It's not like they weren't there. Oh, yeah, they're, of course. They're, there they're are there. stars there. It wasn't. Correct. Thank you. <laughs> He's trying to keep us honest. Keep it honest. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, your exposure matters here. And you I call blow bullshit. out the earth. I don't think there were stars there. <laughs> 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 so, all right. So, uh, in The Pale Blue Dot, the book, Carl Sagan waxed poetic and philosophical and with great elegance uh, on what our place is in space and in 
the universe in general upon reflecting on this pale blue dot. Mm -hmm. and, and, but you were not happy with the pale blue dot, were you? You <laughs> decided to take another pale blue dot. I did. Okay. <laughs> I did. So what did you do? So, okay, so um, I had always, since the first one had it in my, well, since I became the leader of the imaging team, I had it in my mind to do that picture over again, only make it better. And, um, well, because, you know, in a proposal that Carl wrote to the project, the Voyager project, to request that they take this picture, he wrote, this is not commonly known, but he wrote that the, the idea was to take a picture of the Earth, and I quote, a wash in a sea of stars. And as Neil said, that picture didn't, we didn't capture stars, and the Earth is sitting on a beam of scattered light. And of course, none of this matters because Carl, you know, he was the master of romancing things and, and turning the whole thing into a, uh, the allegory on the human condition. So everybody... His prose was bigger than the image itself. Right, yes. right. Oh, it just gave him the wow. opportunity to point out, you know, our, our cosmic circumstance. So I wanted to take the picture that probably Carl would have wanted uh, and as I was looking through the timeline of events that my colleagues were planning and I were planning for the science that we were going to collect with Cassini, um, and I found an opportunity that wouldn't get anybody too angry, you know, I'm not taking too much time, too much resources to take this mosaic with the earth in it, it occurred to me, wow, you know, why instead of doing what everybody seems to have done since the original pale blue dot, and take the picture of the Earth and then two weeks later tell everybody, hey, while you weren't looking, we took your picture and isn't it beautiful, here it is. I thought, why don't we tell the people of the world ahead of time that on such and such a date, at such and such a time, your picture is going to be taken and go out as the window of opportunity opens and look up and think about your position on this planet in the never-ending blackness of space and how unique our planet is, and it's you lush. Me, you got life. people to step outside of their house <laughs> and look up at Saturn while you took their picture. I did. It was the original Pokemon Go. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was. It turned out to be. Um, what you you had a, a cute name for it? What was it called? It's called uh, the day the Earth smiled. The day the Earth smiled. Because I asked everybody to go out and smile. You know, smile in celebration of being alive on a pale blue dot. It was like, like the biggest cosmic performance art ever. So is that art? I mean, you're, you're an artist. Kind of, yeah. And we have, <laughs> but we have a scientist here talking about beautiful pictures and, and engaging people. And, and this is not how scientists usually talk, but it's how an artist, an artist live for that. Sure. I mean, I think... Uh you know, the intersection of science and art and math and art, I mean, uh, I think a lot of musicians think of music, for instance, as a kind of audio geometry. You know, I mean, you can easily graph pitch and time and uh, volume, you know, on a graph, it's chartable. And, and so in a way, you know, melody and music could be considered a kind of audio mathematical language. There's actually this quote that I wanted to tell you. I, I don't know if you've heard it, it's kind of beautiful. Wait, wait. That was way deeper than the time it took you to communicate that. Sorry. That was just, I, we have to pause on that. Well, so, you know. so, so music is in audio geometry. Well, yeah, there's this quote that's relevant to this. It's, it's not, I wasn't on a tangent here, but uh, yeah. You know this guy, James uh, Joseph Sylvester, who was the 
the tutor for uh, Florence Nightingale, who invented nursing or modern nursing. Anyway, yeah, he's a good guy, or she's an amazing woman. But he has this quote that's, um, music, is the, uh, music is the mathematics of sense, and mathematics is the music of reason, which I think is beautiful. Ooh, right? very nice. <laughs> We're both going... What? <laughs> what? Yeah. yeah, and Puff Daddy is the Jupiter of, no, I'm kidding. Um, anyway, so I do think that, uh, I mean, in fact, most of my, I notice, I mean, most of my mathematically and scientifically minded friends, I mean, professional scientists, tend to be really big art fans, too. So there's definitely a, an intersection personality-wise. But one of the things I was thinking about, you know, leading up to this show was, was, mus was science and art actually the same kind of thing, you know, in Babylonian, Sumerian, and Egyptian times? I mean, what I mean by that was, was there art for art's sake, or did it always have a function? I mean, hieroglyphs were telling stories and mythologies, and, you know, being an architect to make a pyramid, you know, you, you were a scientist, and astronomy and astrology were kind of the same thing, because it was all part of religion. And I, I guess what I'm saying is, I think science and art were by definition intersected until a period later on when they started to be totally separate. Because I feel like now art, what defines art from science or anything else is that art doesn't have a function. It doesn't have a purpose other than to be art. So art for art's sake. I mean, that's why it's not math or science. <laughs> but, but I feel like, you know, in Da Vinci's time, for instance, I mean, this is more like a question. Da Vinci was a scientist and an artist. Did he really feel there was a huge uh, separation between those things? I don't know. I based on the notebooks of his that I've looked at, I, it's all the same. Exactly. I mean, he's sketching horses and studying the muscular, you know, patterns the and, and the skin. And, yeah, and, exactly. and in fact, I think, I think we have some, some residue of that time in our modern, some of our modern referencing. So, for example, today you would say, she's got it down to a science. And on the other, you'd say, Raised it to an art. Raised it to an art form, right. Science yeah. and art show up in those two phrases, and in each of those cases, we kind of mean the same thing. Yeah, exactly. That somebody has taken a craft to an extreme limit of perfection, and the only way you can reference that is to say they've raised it to an art or got it down to a science. Yeah. So what, what I, want, I want to bring this back to, to, to what started it. Carolyn did The Day the Earth Smiled, and everyone got engaged in, a, in an activity that was symbolic. And people were touched Very. by the science. And I've seen lyrics that you've written and co-written that were touched by science. And so you're not just an observer of what's going on. It has infused who and what you are as an artist. And I'm enchanted every time I learn that such a thing happens. You, you've got a, I got you, what you got? Yeah, I have a song. You've I was got a song here called Nebulullaby. Yeah, well, I have a band uh, with my girlfriend uh, called The Ghost of a Sabertooth Tiger. It's a catchy title. And we have a <laughs> bunch of songs. I mean, I mean, we're both kind of science groupies. And I say we're science groupies because if I were to say I was a science nerd, that would mean I'd actually have to know facts. But as a groupie, I'm just kind of waiting backstage and waiting to be touched by science, as it were. Um, <laughs> But yeah, <laughs> I don't mean you specifically, here, but yeah, but I'm open to it.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the US on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. What's the title of your album? Um, it's Monolith of Phobos. That's my Monolith of Phobos. Yeah, that's Phobos, one of one of Mars moons. Mars's moons. Well, yeah. the origin of that record title, which is uh, my the most recent record I put out with a band called The Delirium, um, is I don't know if you guys have seen it, but there's a there's a C-SPAN interview with Buzz Aldrin where he says there's a monolith on Phobos, and I don't know who put it there. Maybe God put it there, but we have to go boldly forth, and he kind of gets really excited, and I thought it was... He has a t-shirt that says, get your ass to Mars. Exactly. Right. He's, he's really into right. it. But I just thought it was the most amazing interview I'd ever seen. I mean, I assumed it was going to be front-page news of every newspaper, but no one seems to have seen this. Have you guys seen that? Okay. Because it's pretty unbelievable. I mean, it's the second man who has landed on the moon telling us that there's uh, structure on Phobos. I mean, look, I know he's not saying it's artificial, Does but he know still. about the hexagon on Saturn? Right, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. I can't wait to tell him. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but, but the point is, you're inspired by the science that's unfolding around you. Yeah, we have a song called Schrodinger's Cat, which or refers to, you? Uh, you know... Schrodinger's Cat. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, we so Schrodinger, Schrodinger was a, a, a physicist, a yeah, fundamental to the birth of uh, quantum physics as a branch of physics. Right, but didn't he come up with the Schrodinger's cat uh, scenario to disprove the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, meaning he was making fun of it no, as No, he proposed to it as a test, as a thought experiment. But he was against it, as my point. He wasn't for it. I, I don't know what he was for or against it, but if you're smart, it doesn't matter. You challenge <laughs> people's other, the other people's thoughts. Right. Well, I wouldn't know anything about that. Yeah, so no, no. <laughs> you, you can be... No, no. <laughs> no. What, what I mean is... If you're, if you're smart in the room, you can pose a question that, that's either 
right or wrong, but if it challenges other people to think more deeply than they were before, that is useful, whether or not it turns out the way you had intended. Right Ptolemy's geocentric known universe had Earth in the middle, everything orbiting around it, and he came up with epicycles. It was a whole mathematical model. All turned out to be wrong. Ah. <laughs> what a dummy. But, but it was fascinating. It became a fascinating model to try to attack, to see if you could find out why that was wrong. Is there an experiment that could, that could falsify it? And so, so this, is, this is what led to the great insult. You want to insult a scientist? You say, your work is not right and it's not even wrong. Ooh. Cold. That is cold. Ice cold. <laughs> Ooh, it's not even wrong. Put some liniment on that burn. I like that. That yeah. reminds. That Look, so I'm just, yeah. I'm looking at your lyrics here. I'm, I'm very impressed. Oh well, I, I mean, I'm embarrassed now to read them, but I was told to, so I'm going to. Um, can, can you give us just a few? Well, okay, so Schrodinger's cat. It's so dorky, isn't it? So yeah, we wrote this <laughs> song, and I guess there's a, there's a few science references in here. Well, this is philosophical. It says, "Like a tree that falls alone in the woods without a sound." I can't be sure that I exist when you're not around. Oh, From oh Sun, yeah. is that romantic oh or what? Then, uh, no, wait, wait, pause. Would you pause when you say something deep? <laughs> just give, give the rest of us. Just, just. Yeah, you you pause. Give us that, that was beautiful. It was beautiful. Can, I hear, can we hear that again? Oh, well, yeah, that's the chorus of Schrodinger's Cat is like a tree that falls alone in the woods without a sound. I can't be sure that I exist when you are not around, Neil. Oh. I just. Okay. <laughs> I, I love when physics, math, philosophy shows up in an artist's creative lair. So, do you think today there's more or less, or what, what's the trend line in the hunger people have either for art or for science or for their marriage going forward? And I say that because, for example, there, there are significant appearances of films where scientific accuracy was strongly valued, yet it needed an entire room full of artists to create the visuals for the stories that were told. And that included Interstellar, the movie Gravity, especially the movie The Martian. Mars, Martian, right, the Martian. Exactly. You are evidence of this. Are you a trend line or are you an anomaly of artists I don't really have fun, yeah. to the moving frontier of science to serve just as, as an aside. As an aside, Neil, I'm also an artist. <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, uh, okay. Right. Thank you. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to say I don't really have my <laughs> finger necessarily on the pulse of, of much. I mean, <laughs> my, I have my own pulse, but that's about it. Is the universe serving as the artist's muse? Well, that, you know, I thought about this, and, and I think that what's interesting is that art until Deco, I think this is true, was, you, was always uh, looking to nature uh, for its inspiration. I mean, if you look at Art Nouveau, which precedes Deco, everything was flowers and trees and, and, and naked ladies. And um, then, then something happens during the Industrial Revolution when everything starts to look like machinery, and it's because we stopped... Uh, looking to nature for inspiration, which I would say would be like looking to physics for inspiration. And so I feel like that was the time in human history when we stopped really uh, having m as much reverence for, for the universe and nature and, and, and for our Mother Earth because we were no longer paying attention. You, you know, most of the architecture in old New York is 
Art Deco, right? I mean, that's. What I mean, not as much as uh, Florida. I've seen <laughs> some serious <laughs> uh, Deco cities there, but well, you know, not to knock. Florida Deco. has enough issues, you know, to <laughs> lighten up on them. I don't want to knock. You're going to be Art the first Deco. state to just go underwater. You know, just oh, just let's be nice to Florida. They're going to boat themselves underwater. Oh no! <laughs> you see what I mean? So at at the same time. I don't, I, I, they're I heard afraid. you, but I didn't see a cause and effect. Well, what I mean, no, I didn't mean it's causal. I mean, it's, it's interesting that they're happening at the same time. So at once, we're becoming more science literate as a society. We're also becoming less science literate. But don't literate. you think the movies can, uh, a scientifically literate movie? But I'm just saying, we're talking about forces that operate on us in nature. I just think sci-fi films, which are hugely popular, sure. and they make hundreds of millions of dollars, yeah. that they may be our only hope to ensure that we carry a scientifically literate community into the future, lest the absence of science literacy lead to our own extinction. Neil, that may I ask a question about the intersection of <laughs> science and art? <laughs> what about the reverse, which also seems common in art leading to science? Uh, uh, I, I, from what I see in my uh, light reading of science, a lot of science is inspired by, or scientists are inspired by things they saw as kids, like in Star Trek or Star Wars or whatever. Battlefield Earth. And, and what? <laughs> no, it's true. Like, have you yeah. guys heard of that book, The Science or the Physics of Star Trek? It's kind of dorky, but, you know, it's, it's basically what is possible in Star Trek and what isn't. I mean, Next Generation was pretty far ahead of its time in terms of trying to talk about real physics and wormholes and parallel dimensions and stuff. But I remember there was this controversy where there was an episode where they went back in time and there were all these like, Trekkie nerds being like, well, I looked at the stars in the sky and the star system, I calculated wouldn't have been that position of Orion and all that stuff. Yeah! Which I just think is so funny. But I mean, I, is, I just find it so funny to be really uptight about like, well, the plasma engine wouldn't have been this or that way, but they have no problem with the fact that they're like, you know, in space talking to Klingons. Like, that doesn't <laughs> seem... Whenever I release a tachyon pulse, it's pretty much like it is it's in the like, show. It's like, now I can't suspend my disbelief. <laughs> Orion would have been slightly to the left. How am I supposed to get into this? So, so... <laughs> they have no life. Yeah. I, I, ha I, have I must no life. defend the Geekiverse in this moment. <laughs> okay. So, those debates that unfold, unfold where actual known science has been attempted in the storytelling, which is why they're not arguing about whether they can have a conversation in English with Klingons. Sure. Because that's the fantasy side where they've stepped off the, the, the circle of science and then they made stuff up. But if you're going to be, if you're going to say you're going to have a photon torpedo, let it have some resemblance to an actual photon and an actual torpedo, <laughs> and we're going to debate that. If you're going to use a phaser that stuns you, okay, what is down. the mechanism? You, you got to calm down. Just, just relax. Okay? <laughs> just, just, <laughs> just take a breath. If you can have warp drives, what is the warping mechanism so that you can cross the galaxy during the TV commercial? Speaking you of which, think about this. Didn't they just make? Aren't they proposing at NASA? You would probably know about this, uh, an actual plasma engine, which obviously would be much slower than jet than jet fuel. But they, that's what runs the uh, the the uh, the Enterprise is a plasma engine, isn't it? I, I Dilithium crystals, which yeah. I also have. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> right on. Wait. Um, so, so, so. This intersection of what artists do and what scientists do. Carolyn, you, you, <laughs> did I get this right? You advised one of the Star Trek movies? I did. Which one? The first one, Star, uh, the first one of the modern era, uh, Star Trek 2009. So, so nice. Nice. 
Okay, J.J. Abrams. Yes. So oh, the one where they're near Saturn, hiding? No. Oh, yes. That was my idea. That nice. Was Ooh. Nice. Ooh, so, yeah. so. Do you want the story? Yeah. Quick, yeah, do it quick, if you quick, quick. quick. <clears throat> okay, so I met J.J. Abrams at TED. We exchanged, you know, cards, kind you, of You thing. gave a TED talk. I did. And yes. he heard your TED talk. Yes. And he said, I, I, he, okay. <laughs> That's what he said. Okay, go. He didn't say it right then. We, you know, went our separate ways nine months later. I have to say this. Her TED talk, somebody used her audio. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and choreographed a little Lego woman, <laughs> painted up to look like her, and the Lego person moved in Lego ways, giving the exact talk that <laughs> Carolyn gave. Aww. It is the cutest thing you ever saw. Yeah. Is that still on YouTube? Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. So it's like Car Porco Lego. The woman who did this, her name is Maya Weinstock. She set up a stage, a little Lego stage, identical to the TED stage. It was magnificent. That, that is so, that yeah, is so charming. Okay, anyway, anyway, go, did did go. she know we could just watch the TED talk? <laughs> 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 it's for all the Lego people out there. It's for the Lego people. <laughs> so anyway, um, nine months later, I get a phone call from someone who says, J.J. Abrams wants to talk to you. And I said, J.J. who? I, don't, I didn't watch Lost. I didn't really, you know. Anyway, he invites me to consult on it. He was very generous about it. He says, I feel like I need to, you know, include you in on this. So I thought, okay, that's great. And I'm expecting we're going to have, like, sessions, you know, in a big Hollywood office where we're going to be shooting the breeze and talking about the planetary scenes or something, like, really cool. He invites me out there. Actually, I was on a trip anyway, and he says, I asked him, could I come out there to Los Angeles? Los Angeles, and he's, I wanted to see something being filmed. I'd never seen a movie being filmed before. And I was hoping, I was really hoping I'd see a scene filmed on the bridge, right? Doesn't every Star Trek fan want to see the bridge? Okay, what? I get out there and I'm watching poor um, Chris Pine, is that his name? Chris Pine, get the crap kicked out of him in a bar. That's the scene. <laughs> You remember that? It's a that? good scene. Yeah, it is pretty good. It's a good scene. Well, I'll just tell you, I saw this poor guy get hit in the face, fall on the floor, get picked up, punched again, fall on the table, How, fall It on wasn't the real. It's a movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But it happened like 25 times. Yeah. He had to go through this. So Welcome anyway. Welcome to showbiz. Anyway. I'd love to see the Lego version of that. <laughs> Let me... <laughs> <laughs> But what was real about how they hid uh, the Enterprise on Saturday? No, wait, I'm getting to real? that. I'm That's getting to that. So, so we break for lunch, very unglamorous. I'm sitting with Abrams. I'm sitting with the head of special effects. And we're just eating these very boring meals. And out of nowhere, he says, I've got a problem. And he says, we've got the Enterprise coming back into the solar system to save the Earth. And we've got to figure out where to hide it. <laughs> what did he say? So I'm thinking this is so ridiculous, but he must be trying to test me, right? He's, he just wants to see if I could come up with any good idea. So I say the first thing that comes into my head. I said, well, why don't you have it come out of warp drive in the atmosphere of Titan and then have it rise out of the haze and, you know, with the Enterprise and the rings and Saturn in the background. It'll be a really groovy scene. And to my surprise... To my surprise... It goes with bitching. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, groovy. To my it. surprise, he says, oh, my God, that's brilliant. And that's all they ever wanted from me. Yeah. And they sent you back. 
But they used it, they did a, you know, and then, oh, this gets to your point. They sent me like the first draft of it, and I pointed out lots of errors. I said, well, you've got Titan on an inclined orbit. It's not really on an inclined orbit. You've got the, the atmosphere doesn't look quite right, and the guy who does the special effects, Roger Guyette, is saying, oh, look, don't worry about it. And I said, you don't understand. People are going to know I'm the science advisor on this, and they're going to think, I don't know that Titan is not on inclined orbit. You've got to fix it. And he wouldn't do it. He just says, if anybody asks you about this, just tell them it was my fault. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens? The movie comes out, and there are blogs and blogs, <laughs> never-ending blogs about what the hell did that porco woman do? And oh, my gosh. Titan's not on an inclined orbit, but doesn't she know this? I mean, it was just pathetic. That is geekitude at its finest. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's cool, it's cool. Well, we're going to explore all the challenges facing the survival of humanity today and whether we can appeal or reach for creativity and art and science. So, so Sean, you, you think deeply about state of the world. Like, you're, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the role of science or art as a savior to the human race? Well, this is actually interesting. I, I saw a documentary, and this is going to make sense. On, on, <laughs> we'll on decide. Early, yeah. on, on, <laughs> <laughs> okay. on, on New York, um, before the uh, invention of cars, and they had this problem where they couldn't take the horse manure out of the city without bringing in more horses to bring it out. And it was actually a disaster, whereas if you look at brownstones, they're about eight steps high because they had to build, they started building the buildings with high steps so you could step over the manure. So it was actually a... a, a yeah, New horse York, will poop about yeah. up to 30 and, pounds and, of manure a day. And New York, well, yeah. How many thousands of horses were there in New York? Well, that was their only form of transportation other than walking, right? So... Well, that's a bad design. Right. Wait, wait, so was it yeah. actually... Wait, 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 so just... You said something I, that I had to talk. So, of course, to move manure out of the city, you need, you need horse-drawn carriages exactly. carrying the manure, right. and they're pooping all the way. And it was a state of so equilibrium. It was equilibrium. It was equilibrium. So the, the, the poop, you get the same poop <laughs> to take the poop out as the poop was when you started. There was a poop so resonance equilibrium, I think. Is yes, a resonance <laughs> equilibrium. Okay, um, res right. so, so, I mean, I was looking at this, and what's interesting is it was this, the city was in a state of emergency. They didn't know how to, how to solve the problem, and then suddenly, I think the Model T came out, and then it was just, it wasn't a problem anymore. So I always try to, ever since I saw that, I thought, you know, that's a good metaphor for the unpredictable nature of technological innovation. So I think we always have to account for that, even though we're looking at our inevitable demise, that maybe some scientists will come up with something smart that saves us that we can't predict. Okay, so your solution is completely bound up in hope. To just, okay. basically, <laughs> to just basically hope that, you know, you and Carolyn figure well, it out. Well, in fairness, you're, you're also counting on alien slavery to help us. That's, yeah. <laughs> the same guy. That was the same guy. Yeah. Right. Um, but having yeah. said that, I did just, uh, unfortunately, I, I probably shouldn't have, but I read this book called um, Learning to Die in the Anthropocene, uh, which is um, by this guy, Roy Scranton, who, who um, is very smart. He, he, and I learned the word Anthropocene from him. I'm sure you guys knew it already, but it's the human 
uh, uh, distinguished epoch. So it's the, it's, it's the time on the planet that essentially has been affected by humans. It's the epoch that's the anthro epoch. And um, he basically says... In, in other words, all other periods in the geologic history of Earth have been marked by some natural disaster, uh, 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 volcanoes, uh, um, asteroid strikes. And right now, if you look at the signature of what's going on on Earth, it is primarily that of human activity. Right. And so therefore, exactly. the geologists say, there's nothing else we can call this but blame it on humans. And so you get the Anthropocene. Exactly. exactly. Okay. So it's the human-caused environmental impact and all that other stuff, mass extinction, which we are also causing. Vanessa, do, do, you, do you have confidence in science? Well, or? you know, that reminded me a lot what you were saying of the finale of Dinosaurs. I don't know if you've seen. <laughs> do you remember the show Dinosaurs on TGIF? The <laughs> I, I saw the, the ad. What's that? You saw ad? Okay. In the finale, the yeah, not the mama. In the in the finale, the dinosaurs die. Anyways, what, what did you ask? You know what? In reality, they died too. No, 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 no. But it was a comedy. <laughs> Fair, but it was like a comedy show, and everyone was having a great time. Um, Anyway, what did you... You can laugh about the dinosaurs dying. I don't know. Dying. I'm just what, curious. What, what, uh, he, he's, yeah. he's preparing himself for death. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, what are you, are you doing? Are you working on a movie? <laughs> <or>? <laughs> I do think that there... We should be able to just, like, go to another planet. Also, how Grow do we... another planet? How do what, we what's, know? what good is that going to do you? But, okay. Well, if we put mean? trout there, we'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, Carolyn, well, well, she's saying if we mess up Earth, he'll oh, stay here and die, yes, and yeah. she's got a new planet. Well, also, like, well, how I'm, do we know that all the other things didn't do that? Like, we're like, oh, they stayed here and died. What if they went to, like, you know, But think about world? it. Oh, we, can't, we, can't even, oh. we can't even terraform Arizona. I mean, <laughs> how are we going to terraform Mars, you know? No, John is very right about this, this whole idea, and let's, like, get with the program here. We're not going to take 7 billion people and move them to Mars. That's not what going into outer space we means. We only need like 2,800 of us, right? I mean, <laughs> that's, I think that's all we need. You just we'll need a, a minimum amount of really fertile people. Just Excuse so me? Can... <laughs> 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 all right, so you know what I wonder? You did read my bio. I wonder if either... <laughs> I wonder if either aliens will come help us and save us from ourselves, or whether we will invent artificial intelligence that will then solve the problems that we measly humans cannot. What, is, what are the problems? The problems? The problems. You don't know about problems <laughs> in the world today? <laughs> Do you need me to tell you? But No, no, here's one. The problem is we invent AI, and the AI judges that we are virus infecting the Earth, and we should be destroyed. But that, that's not a real problem. That's like a, that's not a real problem. I mean, it would definitely be a problem if it happened. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, for everyone but John, it would be like, yeah, whatever, I learned to deal with it. Wait, wait, so Carolyn, if that happened, problem. that would be a real problem. Okay, but, but so before, what are you you get, before you get there, our core, let's, like, you're a scientist, let's dig deeper, okay? Um, let's dig together, I think go. the core of all our problems is that there's too many, damn many of us. That's why. There's overpopulation. There's too many too what? Many, damn many of us. Wait, wait, so Too many Carolyn, people. Wait, wait, wait. So we just, just, just no. terraform another planet, and, and, we, and we have I two just, planets I, to live I just on. said you're not going to transport all these Should people. Should we poison foreigners' food? <laughs> no. No. Wait, wait, Carolyn. Carolyn. Oh, 
Carolyn. Yes, Neil. A hundred years ago, and 150 years ago, and 200 years ago, people were worried ever since Malthus. I know. Thomas Malthus, Everyone... About too many people, and the people would outstrip the food supply. Now we got the, the fact that anybody is starving in the world today is not because there isn't enough food. We have more food than has ever been in the history of the world. It's a distribution political problem. So, so what are you worried about there being too many people? Why not innovate so that we can make as many babies as we want? It's just like it feels crowded, Neil. Well, no, because the population as it is, and I, I know what you're saying, what Malthusianism is, and it's kind of dark, but uh, the, 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 I, we're, we're already just, you know, getting rid of lions and tigers and elephants. I mean, these species, we can't even coexist with yes. them now. Yes. And human-caused environmental change is yes. so extreme already that there, it might be irreversible. So if there were twice as many people, there would be twice as many mopeds and cars, and that's just dangerous and for the planet, And twice as much right? plastic. I mean, you know how much plastic wait, 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 there is decade, in the ocean? Twice as many mopeds? Where, where did that come from? Yeah. What, what, is this a time Somebody's warp Somebody's worried here? about Belgium. <laughs> you know... You say that, but in places like, you know, Malaysia, the Philippines, China, they're all on mopeds. I just it's haven't even thing. heard the word All right, moped. we get rid of those. Who else? I like... I <laughs> <laughs> mopeds. I haven't I, heard the word moped in 30 years. All right, so... This is a real retro show with bi bitchin' mopeds. Have you seen my bitchin' moped? I haven't seen your bitchin' moped, no. <laughs> Groovy, man. Groovy. All right, all right, so, so yes, I mean, <laughs> what are the problems that I worry about? You said I think deeply. I mean, certainly environmental uh, disaster that's human caused uh, by the Anthropocene. And I wonder also, you know, Elon Musk and very intelligent people, uh, it's not just a joke, uh, Carolyn, they warn against uh, super malevolent AI. Well, maybe m not malevolent from its perspective, but from our perspective, certainly if it decided, as you said, that we were somehow expendable or some kind of virus to be rid of. I mean, have you heard of Roko's Basilisk? Roko's Basilisk. It's a thought experiment um, uh, thinking that if once AI creates itself, then as Kurzweil states, it'll be able to infinitely improve itself in, in a sort of blink of an eye. It'll, it'll teach itself how to be the, you know, the, the most intelligent thing, at least in the solar system. And at that point, it will be essentially a kind of god because it will, you know, be almost omniscient. But let's just say that it, it evolves to be the most intelligent thing imaginable. Then its morality could be based on that which helped bring me about is good and that which didn't help bring me about is bad because if it had a morality, it would consider itself to be the most important thing ever. And so that all decisions that led towards it are good, and all decisions that were not leading towards it would be bad. So the people who are scared of Roko's Basilisk, which is the name of the AI, are scared that it would figure out how to reproduce people through the DNA codons of, of, from the past in, you know, doctor's archives or whatever, and recreate you and torture you for eternity in some kind of weird virtual hell to punish you for not bringing it about. I think the people who write these things are sociopaths. What? what? <laughs> I was just using the magic eyes thing, you know, I, think, I was back I there. So you love science, but you're like a little scared of some science. <laughs> no, but you laugh, I mean, but there are people that take it very seriously. In fact, if you go on the website that the idea was first proposed, it's now banned to speak about, because no one wants to mention Roko's Basilisk in, online, because it'll trace back to the person who posted it and torture them forever. <laughs> did, did you just endanger us all to some future <laughs> <Yes>. AI? <laughs> you murderer! <laughs> <laughs> I will delete the file tonight of this yeah. whole 
I love the best. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. All right. Can't wait for it. If what I want to do is uh, give the last word to Carl Sagan. With your permission, we will end this evening with a reading from the Book of Carl. If you look at Earth from space, you see a dot. That's here, that's home, that's us. On it, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever lived out their lives, the aggregate of all our joys and sufferings, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilizations, Every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every hopeful child, every mother and father, every inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species live there on a moat of dust. Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and in triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of the dot on scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner of the dot. How frequent their misunderstandings. How eager they are to kill one another how fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. It's up to us. It's been said that astronomy is a humbling and, I might add, character-building experience. To my mind, there is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly and compassionately with one another and to preserve and cherish that pale blue dot the only home we've ever known. Beacon Theater, thank you for your time. Thank you for my panel. Vanessa, Carolyn, Sean, Michael, 